Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramesh ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And we thank you for joining us. The Champions League is back. The Europa League is back. It is wall-to-wall football, 24-7, round the clock. I love the early kickoff time as well. So as you can tell, I'm extremely excited. And to share that excitement with me, it's the only living gear brand in captivity. It's James. And down the line from Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. Okay, so much to discuss, but we have to start with Tottenham in some sort of uh, turmoil under Maurizio Pochettino. A late Inter Milan comeback on Tuesday turned a 1-0 lead into a 2-1 defeat. Uh, Ollie, you were at the San Siro to witness Tottenham's third defeat in a row, the first time that has happened, of course, under Pochettino. And he certainly let off some steam in the press conference after the game, didn't he? Well, he did. He was, he was calm in the most, for the most part, but it was... But, but... One journalist asked him, you know, was he still sure he'd made the right decision uh, with regards to, to leaving um, Toby Alderweireld and Kira Krithia behind? And it was it was obviously a team that was already without Luis and, and Ali. And, and was he sure that, that that had been the right decision? And he reacted quite angrily to that. Not that he was um, raging, but he, but he just seemed absolutely affronted and, and shocked that anybody would dare to question not only his decision, but the role played by you know, the players he deputised, Aurier and, um, and Sanchez, who, in fact, I thought were two Spurs better players on the, on the night. So I can understand why he might take umbrage, but there was a sort of line that didn't really sit very easily with me where he suggested that, you know, he is the manager and, and his decisions must be respected and not, not questioned. Fans of other clubs... Um, tweeting me saying, oh, are you going to say he's under pressure now? Are you going to say he's in crisis like you do when, um, when it's Mourinho or when it's Arsenal or when it's Chelsea or whatever? I made the point in the paper this morning, the situations are not the same. He is a manager with so much credit in the bank with his club, with the fans, with the players. Um, he's under, his job is under no pressure whatsoever. His relations with his players are good. His relations with his with the fans are good. The relations with the board, even relations with the media are good. 
he's not under the same level of pressure, but he does put himself under a lot of pressure. And you can tell he's not happy at the moment. And one thing that has been interesting, in my opinion, is, is the way he seems to have changed tack before and after each game. He was furious after the Watford game, furious by the lack of um, focus that they showed, furious um, again in questioning their, their attitude before the Liverpool game, was clearly expecting a reaction and then didn't get that reaction really. They were poor again in that game. And he seemed to row back a lot and, and was much more supportive and softer. And it was the same um, before the inter game, after the inter game. But I, I don't think he really knows what sort of message to send out to the players at the moment publicly. I'm sure he's, he's, his private messages are, are very um, are, are very straightforward. But um, there, there does seem to be a, a, a difficulty in, in saying the right thing publicly, and it just makes you realise how difficult it is um, to to say the right thing publicly, to, to press the right buttons. As been alluded to, set pieces are a bit of a weakness for them at the moment. Four of the last six goals they have conceded have come from set pieces. James, their goalkeeper Hugo Lloris, of course, has been missing for all of their three defeats. Are they missing their captain, do you think, to organise those set pieces? I think they probably are missing Lloris, yeah, as, as anyone would miss their, their first choice keeper. Um, and I think one thing that probably hasn't helped Michel Vorm coming in, I think most keepers would say, if you're a reserve keeper and you've been sitting on the sidelines, you want to come in and you want to play behind a really settled back line. And he hasn't had that because obviously Pochettino played back three against Watford and then the back four against Liverpool with Alvaro and Vertonghen in the middle and then against Inter Milan it was back four but with Sanchez and Vertonghen in the middle so he hasn't quite had that settled back line to play behind they definitely do have a problem at set pieces and as we kind of all know set pieces are sort of they're also sort of sort of a kind of general sort of kind of health check for how things are going at a club because obviously it's the kind of thing that you drill on the training ground and you know if you're really well drilled and everyone's really fresh and you know everyone's really responding to the manager it's the kind of thing that generally you do well and obviously it tends to go badly if a little bit of fatigue and the concentration levels are slightly off or you know maybe things are a little bit stale on the training ground so I guess that kind of fits with some of what we're hearing about the kind of general situation. Matt Hughes reports in today's times that the, the players feel Pochettino is training them too hard. Apparently players have even been sleeping at the training ground. We know it's a lovely training ground that they've got, but Ollie, is this normal practice? Um, it's not really normal practice, no. Um, certain clubs do it at certain times. Um, Man City quite often stay at the training ground before a game or even after a game if, if they've got a, a busy schedule coming up. And There are various clubs that have these sort of sleeping pods and Chelsea do and Spurs... Uh, I've, I've done that. I, I think it was, I, I don't know whether it was a one-off um, arrangement after Tuesday's game because obviously they got back in the early hours and he probably felt, well, look, we need to train in the morning. Let's, rather than the disruption of going back to the you know, airport training ground home and then back to the training ground again the next morning, he probably thought, well, let's minimise the, the disruption. But that kind of thing, I think players often find quite difficult when, when, when they're away from when they're away from home but it was uh, no it was, it was interesting to read that and and, and i'm sure um, i'm sure there'll be spurs fans saying oh there were no quotes in it but believe me matt, matt hughes is is extremely well connected at spurs and elsewhere that, that he, I, I would i would be certain that there's no smoke there. i want to ask about Eurice's injury 
suppose he has a thigh injury that he picked up in training. Obviously, he missed out on the internationals as well. Ollie, is there any suggestion to you that given he had the drunk driving ban and everything, these two things aren't connected in any way, are they? Um, I have wondered the same. I made a few inquiries to say, is it definitely an injury? And I was told, yes, it's definitely an injury. Um, a guy who doesn't get injured very often is, is, is injured straight after what must have been a, a very sort of traumatic and chastening experience entirely of his own making to, to make that clear. Um, I don't think there's any su- suggestion that they've suspended him or anything like that because if they were to suspend him, I think the best way to do that would be publicly to make an example of, of, of him for, for that offence. Um, that sort of theory has not been encouraged by anybody. It, it, it seems it seems that there is an injury, um, unless, of course, we hear otherwise at a later date. Well, what's next for uh, Tottenham is the fact that they travel to the Amex to face Brighton on Saturday evening. Uh, Brighton have only won one game this season. That was at home to Manchester United. Uh, bearing that in mind, James, could it be now four defeats in a row for Tottenham? It could, yeah. Obviously, Brighton have you know they've had some good results at home last season, but I think Tottenham obviously are still favourites for that game. And I think if you look at Tottenham's next run of fixtures, I think they have four. I can't remember exactly what they are, but I think they have four very winnable fixtures coming up. And obviously, as we know, these things can turn around very quickly. And and, and one thing that I would say about the kind of feeling of malaise at Tottenham at the moment is that we've definitely been here before. I mean, I remember sitting in the in the Stade Louis II in, in Monaco after that very underwhelming Champions League campaign they had when they they went out of what seemed like a very negotiable group and they lost to Monaco and, and Bayer Leverkusen and there was definitely that same sort of feeling of you know is the Pochettino project in peril you know have they gone as far as they can go and obviously that was two years ago and, and they've massively progressed since then all clubs have dips and I think one thing that Pochettino is very good at is he's someone who's really really good at sort of maintaining morale and sort of you know carrying the psychological momentum of the team through these tough times so I think definitely there are reasons to be worried but but equally as I say they've got quite a nice run of fixtures coming up so it could all look quite different in a few weeks. There is undoubtedly the issue of fatigue and lack of rest since the World Cup nine of those players were evolved right till the end of the World Cup and, and prominently in, in many of those cases and there's the fact that they've not been able to strengthen and, and, and that looks like it's um, I mean Pochettino said before the season this is going to be our most difficult season yet and so far that looks right I mean it, it, it's I didn't feel that it was necessarily a total disaster that they that they hadn't strengthened but it certainly didn't help them and when you look at the fact that their, their better performers so far this season have, have tended to be the ones who didn't go to the World Cup, like Lucas Moura, it does seem that it's a squad that did need freshening it up. And um, I think they might well regret that. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. Subscribe now. It's just £1 a month for a three-month trial. Every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats guru, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And here's one for you on this podcast. Name the three British clubs who have won the European Cup or Champions League, but have not won any of the lesser European trophies. 
Ooh. Now, operative word here. I, I know the answer. I've worked it out. Uh, okay. Operative word here, of course, is British. So that <laughs> includes uh, uh, Welsh clubs as well. Yes. You know, total yeah, network solutions. Yeah, that, you know, they're huge. They've got a Possibly. good pedigree. Uh, or obviously clubs north of the border. Bit mean to call it lesser European trophies, but um, I think a very easy way to figure this out if you just count what clubs have won the European Cup, there aren't that many British clubs mm-hmm. who've done it, and then the ones who have, you might remember because they've won their lesser trophies fairly recently, so called lesser You're trophies. Giving too much away, yes, yes, I'm actually oh. teaching you how to do it. <laughs> um, by the way, none of these three clubs are in the Premier League, that'll be, that'll be my other additional hint. Honestly, seriously. <laughs> There's no point sticking around to the end of the podcast to find out the answer. But if you're not sure still, then do stick around because you'll hear it at the end. Now, speaking of the Champions League, it was a mixed week for English clubs in action. Tottenham lost, Liverpool and Manchester United won, but Manchester City suffered their first defeat of the season. A 2-1 loss to Lyon at the Etihad. Uh, Oli, uh, any reason for City to be concerned? Uh, yes, I think I think they should always be concerned when they when they lose games because it generally means that a team has done a job on them because you don't you don't generally um, beat Man City and, uh, unless um, unless you've done a very good job tactically on them. I thought Lyon were absolutely excellent uh, the first half in particular, and I thought City were were way off the boil defensively. They were poor. They were sloppy in possession. Fernandinho looked like a player who's playing a bit too much football, um, which I know was a concern going into um, this season or going into the summer even, which is why they wanted Jorginho. Um, and I just didn't think the balance was was right going forward either. They, they seem to miss De Bruyne. Um, I don't think they've been... Um, I don't think we've yet seen City on anything like the, the level they were 12 months ago. Um, they should, in a in a what looks a fairly straightforward group they should recover from that in terms of getting through to the next round but that is um a performance that is not only going to create some kind of level of introspection at man city but it will be more encouraging for other teams that are facing them over the coming weeks and months and they will think well look there are things we can get at we saw liverpool do it last year on on three occasions really we've seen other teams do it i think the way leon did it Obviously, not every team's going to be able to play against them that way, but but it was uh, that also was very very um, encouraging, I think, for other teams who might be looking to expose weaknesses. Let's name check the architect of this, my man Bruno Genesio, who we might never speak of ever again on this <laughs> podcast because he's not a great manager, but he was phenomenal on the night. But Oli, I, I mean, you touched upon it. Obviously, the, the the depth behind Fernandinho. I thought Gundogan was really poor. Two concerns. I want to get your take on this. One is David Silva is obviously getting older. Can he start two games in four days and be at the same level? Or is kind of, you know, father time catching up with him where if he plays once a week, he's exceptional. But if he's got to do that extra legwork, he might struggle a little. And the other one is I don't want to see Bernardo Silva play wide ever again. Mm. Why? They have enough wingers there. Why not just put the Silva brothers together or have them replace... David Silva, uh, and haven't played with Gundogan if you must, because we saw how how much better he was once he came inside, and they had and, and they had Sonny on the other end. I, I don't see what what makes us think that this guy can can be a winger in, in 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 modern football, other than the fact that he's had to play there the last three four years. 
Well, he, he has the quality to be a, to be a good wide player in that four three three. But how though? He, he, how? he, has he doesn't. Be. He doesn't. He he he's too weak. He he he's not good at tracking back. If he does, he ties himself out. He's not going to run past anybody because he's not. He's he's slow. Um, but what he is is he's a wonderfully creative player. I mean, to me, he seems like so logical that that he should play, you know, as a number ten or or, or inside alongside, you know, and kind of do what what De Bruyne and Silva do. Yeah, no, I, I, I just think I think he has the qualities to be a good wide player in that system, but I think he has the qualities to be an exceptional midfielder in that in the way that Silva and De Bruyne were last season. I, I think being without De Bruyne is is a big loss. It puts more responsibility on on Silva and obviously Silva. Brilliant player, but in terms of that, the question about his um, endurance, etc., I know the number of appearances he made last season wasn't enormous because obviously he had the issue with his, with his family from about the midway point of the season. But in this first half of the season, he was quite regularly playing two games a week and playing at an exceptional level. So I, I don't think it should be a huge problem. But if you look at a number of the players who have been at, who, who were at the World Cup, whether they played. Yeah, three or four games uh, as Silver did, or whether they played six or seven as as several of the Spurs players did. A lot of the players seem to have begun this new season slowly. I don't think Silver or Harry Kane or Mo Salah are alone in that. In fact, Silver's had a couple of really, really good performances. But I don't think many of those players who, who were sort of prominently involved in the World Cup are performing brilliantly twice a week at the moment. Yeah, right. I was all, I'm asking you because you're obviously part Belgian and so therefore more thankful. Um, <laughs> I thought Liverpool, PSG, I was so psyched. I'm, I'm a Tuchelista. I love this guy. I, I, I wrote about him in the Times when he was managing Mainz many, many years ago. And I was really excited to see how he'd perform against Liverpool, against a good team, against a team that wouldn't just put, you know, eight guys in the six-yard box and, and whatever, and he'd actually have to work. And my word, PSG were absolutely terrible. I, the scoreline shouldn't fool anybody. And I don't think Liverpool were even that good. But PSG were just absolutely awful. Um, you know, the front three stuck high up the pitch, no connection to the rest of the team. This doesn't look like a team that's being coached right now, which is odd because Tuchel is not one of those man-manager types. He's supposed to be the guy who really puts his mark on the team. I mean, I agree that PSG were somewhat disappointing. I think also I, I felt that Cavani was just not involved at all, really. He uh, gets in the ball, the poor guy. Yeah, of course. I mean, but I mean, yeah, there, there were kind of there were obviously issues there, and as you say, I think there's obviously the kind of the sort of obvious issue of can you know Neymar and Mbappe can they sort of you know defend from the front in the way that Tuchel might want them to do. For me, I, I also felt though that. I don't know, it's funny, there are sort of there are kind of different ways of reading it, aren't there? I think I also found some of the reaction to the PSG performance a little bit overblown because you could argue that I mean they've gone to the losing finalists from last year, very nearly got a point, it's three two. I don't think it was uh, all right. Liverpool probably the better side, but I don't think it was. Wi- I don't think it was a wildly uneven match. I think if you look at the expected goals, it was relatively even. And obviously, there's also kind of there's also obviously the broader point in that you know they've Thomas Tuchel is a newly appointed manager, and obviously we've seen 
you know, the likes of Klopp at Liverpool or, or even Pep at Man City, that when you appoint a manager who is quite sort of tactically dogmatic, it takes a little bit of time to get those ideas across. And, and I also feel PSG are not a club that anyone has, you know, the neutral has a great amount of warmth for. And I think that people are kind of somewhat keen for them to be bad. Schadenfreude. But... <laughs> There seems to be a lot of focus on, you know, typical soulless PSG, you know, what are they even for, which I feel that... You're talking about Jonathan Wilson, (laughs) aren't you? (laughs) I think the appointment of Tuchel is a way that they've tried to address that. They've tried to get someone who is going to make them a more tactically coherent side, who is going to make them a little bit more than a collection of superstar individuals, who's going to give them maybe a little bit of an identity. But obviously that's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's going to take time. to be fair to PSG, and I'll throw out the mitigate, I count on my own argument, throw out the, the mitigating <laughs> circumstances. First of all, this whole soulless lack of identity thing, I agree with James. I think it's an unfair argument. I mean, Tuchel just arrived. They had a manager there whose job it was to give them an identity. I think in his own way he did. And that man, of course, was Unai Emery. Um, I think it's worth noting that, A, this past summer, financial fair play bit because obviously – while the exact terms of whether the, the way in which they're going to have to pay for for, for breaching um, with Neymar and Mbappe, that's all TBD. They're already stealing themselves for it, as, as we've written and I've written in, in, in the Times as well. And which is why this summer, you know, they ended up with a very small, ended up with a very small squad, in fact. And throw in the fact that a bunch of guys came back late from the World Cup because France did rather well in the World Cup. And throw in the fact that, um, you know. In this game, certainly, Buffon was suspended, neither here nor there, although I'd rather have him than Ariola personally. Although Tuchel, weirdly, I think might have a, a different idea. Um, but also Verratti, I mean, in midfield, you know, you need a midfielder. And he's gotten around it by playing Marquinhos in midfield. And Marquinhos is, for me, one of the best defenders in the world. But he just doesn't have that same passing ability and vision and, 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 and rhythm to his game that a natural midfielder has. Uh, Bernat, I think, is terrible, and that's another thing. I mean, Kurzawa's out. Bernat is a winger masquerading at left back, and in Pep Guardiola's Bayern, you could get away with it some of the time, which, by the way, you know, let's not forget, Alaba was mostly the left back, and Alaba can actually defend this dude. The penalty he gave away was just completely, completely asinine. So I think there's a ton of mitigating circumstances here, but it is weird that the benchmark will be the Champions League, and they put in another performance like this one. Um, and I think they're in serious danger of going out because that's not an easy group that they're facing. Mm, indeed. Right, let's move on, though, to uh, another guy making the headlines uh, for the wrong reasons. Cristiano Ronaldo sent off in his Champions League debut for Juventus. Now, it, it took many replays to establish what exactly happened, but he seemed to have been shown a red card for, for maybe scratching the hair of Valencia's Jason Maria. What did you make of it, Cap? But thought it was an absurdly bad call. It's not mm. the referee Felix Brick who sent him off. It was it was obviously the AAR. Mm. One thing to remember, and I don't know if this played into this, but you know, I'll just wildly speculate. Um, the additional assistant referees—they're referees. There's no additional assistant referees really in any major league anymore in Europe because the ones who had them have moved to VAR. Uh, referees are competitive with each other. I wonder, and I'm purely wondering, if this AAR didn't say, hey, Felix, by the way, Ronaldo pulled his hair and left it at that. 
didn't say, and in my opinion, you should send him off. And in my opinion, though, he pulled his hair, but it's no big deal. Just watch him later or whatever. I think he just said that. And then Brick says, ah, yes, I am German. They, he pulled his hair, therefore he must be sent off. Or, or I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I'm joking a little bit. This but is because I, you've got a hotline to the referees like you've got a hotline to certain <laughs> EFL managers. I, I did not speak to anybody at uh, UEFA about this. No, but I, I do know how they work a little bit. It's really important that they have the collaboration and the trust, right? And when, when AARs work well, and I think they have worked pretty well, it's because they have that relationship with the referee. And sometimes you don't have that same teamwork. Now, I have no idea. Maybe Brick and this guy are best friends in real life. But I do wonder, to me, this seems like some kind of miscommunication because if Brick saw what happened, there was no way, no way you send him off. Um, and people will wonder if it can be overturned. I think it's highly unlikely because it was it was a judgment call. What UEFA don't want to do, I think rightly, is say, okay, well, let's go and look at 20 pictures of video afterwards and, over, and re-referee games based on that. I don't think you can... Uh, you can go ahead and do that. So the reality is he'll likely miss the return against United. The referee himself had his back to the incident, so wouldn't have been able to see anything, as you say. Um, his uh, AAR certainly would have helped him. But you also mentioned the fact that other leagues have had the, the AAR but have now installed VAR. So why don't we have VAR in the Champions League this season? So it's interesting. I, Alexander Cheffrin spoke about this um, before in Monaco at the Champions League draw. There was a feeling that if we do this, we should probably do it for the entire competition. And at that point, it becomes difficult for two reasons. One is there's a whole technical aspect to VAR where the stadiums have to be set up in a certain way, which is expensive. Now, obviously, those leagues that already have VAR already have the setup, but most of Europe doesn't. In fact, most of the, the teams in the Champions League group stage aren't set up for VAR. Secondly, there's a whole issue with uh, with the control room and whether you have uh, a central location, and if you're going to have that, you need to connect it by a cable and broadband. Again, that's expensive. That takes time, because if you do it by satellite, you could lose the pictures, then it'd be a disaster, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, also, the number of referees that are, you know, that have experience with VAR is actually limited. It's one thing at the World Cup where, and if you notice, if you actually look who the VAR referees, it was, it was basically five crews that did everything. You can't have that, otherwise you would only have you know, Italian, German, and Portuguese referees, just about. So they felt that, you know, they weren't quite ready for it at that level. And, and, and I can see why they made that, why they made that decision. But I think for next season, my understanding, and I've spoken to some, here I have spoken with some people, is that they will definitely, I mean, they would, they would, as Martin Ziegler wrote, they would be ready for the uh, knockout stage this year. And they will definitely be ready from the group stage and probably the prelims next year because obviously you will have had many more VAR games here in England. VAR has been introduced in Spain. Um, you have it in France uh, and, and it, it is being trialed. You know, you've had it already in Poland and Turkey. So all these things together um, will have enough referees for that. I'm not actually at all convinced that that red card necessarily, I, I don't know what you think, Gab, but I'm, I'm not at all convinced that that red card would have been overturned had VAR been in place. It was sort of a soft-seeming red card, but it wasn't sort of a fundamental kind of error in the, you know, obviously Ronaldo did kind of, I don't know. I just No, well, my, what would have happened with VAR is the additional assistant referee wouldn't have been there. It would have been a question of the VAR deciding, all right, does Brick need to look at this or not? Yeah. And, and then you presume Brick would look at it and say, well, this is ridiculous. 
this is not a red card. I mean, that, that, mm. I mean, I, I think Allegri's right when he says that. Can we give a shout out to United? Go on, Gab. I Honestly. know you really want to do this, don't no, you? No, because it's a, I don't want people to think that we only talk about United and Mourinho when they're bad. Now, Fair enough. They played a team called Young Boys, which were not very good, and they weren't necessarily brilliant. But Rashford, we got to see Rashford again. and He uh, started. He started. Mm-hmm. Paul Pogba scored a great goal, and he scored another one. And, yeah, they won 3-0, and par for the course so far. And I think with Valencia losing at home, that's a, that's a really good result for United because, you know, it, in these groups where you've got three sort of top-tier teams, you know, you need to not drop points. So well done, United. You're on your way. Well, this week there was a big-name exit from the Emirates. Ivan Gazidis has left. It was it was widely expected, Gab, but it's now been confirmed. I think it, it became widely expected. Um, I don't think anybody would have imagined this at the end of the season, right, because he had everything, right? Wenger was gone. He'd been able to go and appoint his guys, right, Sven Mislintat as, uh, as the uh, sort of recruitment Scout guy, Raul Sanyehi as chief of football operations, which is sort of like a supercharged director of football, technical director type. Um, Kroenke had bought out Usmanov, so not that Usmanov was much of a pain in, in the rear end, but he's still a guy who wanted to chuck in the cup. So, you know, Kroenke had his full backing, and now all of a sudden he says, yeah, you know what? He's second highest paid chief executive in the Premier League. And then he says, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm going to go. I'll, I'll, I'm going to go to Milan. I thought that was really odd, but you felt over time that this is this was the way it was heading. Um, it's bizarre, isn't it, James? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is kind of weird and, and not what Emery necessarily would have wanted. I, I feel like there's kind of... At the end of last season, as Wenger was sort of gradually phased out, I think that was sort of... I feel like there was maybe sort of quite a lot of appetite for the shift towards the new model with obviously Sven Mislintat and, 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 you know, sort of being towards a more sort of devolved responsibility is what I mean. And even like a few, uh, a few weeks into the new season, which is, you know, probably too early to make any kind of firm judgments, but I, I sort of feel that kind of the shine has really sort of worn off that I've been sort of, as I say, it is early, an early stage in the season, but I personally have been really quite disappointed by some of the recruitment. I, I feel like a lot of the, the Mislintat signings have been quite uninspired. I, I'm not really sure what the signing of Socrates was was in aid of and that I find the whole Leno situation so weird. Um, Emery didn't really give much away other than to say that, you know, he was someone who, you know, he had a close relationship with in their short time together and that, you know, he was a he was an important kind of professional figure at, at Arsenal. Certainly in the short term. I mean, what I gleaned from, and I mean, Matt Hughes has done some excellent reporting on this, but what I gleaned from the um, from the press conference is, okay, well, that's all right, because Raul Sanyehi will run everything to do with football. We are a football club after all. And they have this guy, um, this commercial guy who used to work for London 2012, I think. This guy, Vinay, forgive me, I don't remember his last name, but his first name is definitely Vinay. Or Vinay like or Venkateshan, isn't it? Venkateshan, I think, yeah. He's going to be in charge of basically everything else, all the commercial side, everything on football. Which is fine, but you suspect at some point on some big issues, there may be, and like budgets and whatnot, there may need to be tiebreakers. And uh, some people have suggested that Stan Kroenke's son, Josh, might take a greater role, a greater interest in the club. Um, he's not 
particularly experienced, but you know, obviously he's followed Arsenal. He's been passionate about it. He's advised his dad and the uh, the Cronky group. Um, we'll see how it works out. But what I think is, it's what I've been told, and I've written about this as well, is I think this was a real blow and a real letdown for for Stan. Um, I know we like to depict him as sort of this cold, unfeeling weirdo with a mustache, but the reality is I think he, he really developed an affinity with, with Arsene Wenger. I mean, they're also the same age and whatever else. And, you know, I think he really felt that, okay, we've made the bold choice. We've cut this guy loose. We've put everything in Ivan's hands. And I think he took this, he took this personally. Now there may be another side of the story to this, which maybe Ivan will share one day, but from their perspective, I think it was a letdown. And it was maybe also a letdown for for some people who, who joined the club because Ivan was there. I, I don't I I'm not gonna say Raul Sanye he wouldn't have come if not for Ivan, but I do know that that was a big part of the decision because he did have he did have other options. Gazidis didn't seem to be very popular there with the Arsenal fans. Could that have been a factor in it as well? Um I mean, he's moving to a new country where he doesn't speak the language and where, you know, his new bosses are a hedge fund that's been described as a vulture fund. So I don't know how popular he plans on being there. Um, what chief executive is particularly popular with his supporters? Mm. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe the kind of chief executive goes to a pub beforehand. I don't think Ed Woodward's, you know, it's not necessarily their job. They need to be popular with the owners and need to provide the results. Um, and obviously Gazidis... Because in the end, a lot of people saw this as Gazidis versus Wenger. Gazidis found himself in a situation, and I have a bit of sympathy for him, where he wasn't popular because there were people who were blaming him for protecting Wenger and not sacking Wenger earlier. So he was unpopular with those guys, and then he was unpopular with the people who thought Wenger was treated harshly when Wenger did go. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it is a bit of a lose-lose for him, right? Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, which is the Times' fancy football tip service. I'm Charlie Scott, joined by Paddy Bombert. Hello there. And yeah, we advocated playing the wild card during the international break, and between us we put our heads together and came up with our wildcard squad, which did quite well last week, didn't it, Paddy? Well, yes. Uh, 75 points, I think, you'd have had for the starting 11. Um, and uh, depending on who you captained, possibly Hazard, it could have gone up to 95. So that was a good start. Hopefully a few people listened, and hopefully those guys keep scoring points as the weeks go on. I mean, Hazard looked unstoppable, didn't he, that hat-trick? Well, yeah, for, we said for a couple of weeks, you've really got to try and have him. Um, and we also were banging the drum of Ryan Fraser a bit for the past few weeks as well. Those were the two massive scorers last weekend. Um, and same advice goes, really, try and get them both in, because they've both got some good games, and they're both pretty integral to their team's success. Absolutely. Bournemouth have looked great going forward uh, we were talking about this earlier I think avoid the defence but those attacking midfielders and the strikers Josh King and Callum Wilson they're both 6.3 million they've both scored a lot of points already this season and Ryan Fraser yeah what a revelation he's 5.7 I think yeah. he's scored the fourth most points so far plenty of good mid-price strikers out there as well Wilson King Zaha Mitrovic all got nice fixtures coming up good form as well if you're looking for someone around the 6.5 million bracket you're sport for choice absolutely and what about um, another one Raul Jimenez yeah I like Wolves um, we, we wrote 
wrote about it this week on the Times website. You can go and find a, a piece, a bit of a spotlight on Wolves. They look really solid at the back, uh, creating lots of chances going forward. Um, and I think a lot of their players, pretty much the whole starting eleven, I could advocate a case for them for getting them in your fantasy team. They all look like very good value. Um, Man United away this weekend, slightly tricky fixture. Maybe wait until next week and then try and find a couple of Wolves assets. Definitely. And just quickly, captain picks this weekend. I think Salah might finally um, finally get the monkey off his back. Uh, Southampton at home, uh, Salah and Mane are both going to have a good chance of scoring a lot of points. Ditto Hazard, probably Aguero, the usual cast. Yeah, yeah, Salah, I mean, I, I've sold him, so I'm sure I'm going to be crying on <laughs> Sunday afternoon. I was looking at his stats, he's had the most touches in the opposition box this season. He's created the second most chances from open play, he's had the second most shots. I think give him one more week. One more week, yeah. Hat-trick for Salah incoming, I would say. Don't forget, you can sign up for the sweeper, our weekly email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fancy football. We've also got the Facebook page, Just search for the sweeper on Facebook, and you can send your picture of your squads in and we can analyse those, give you a bit of feedback, help your transfers, try to anyway. And find the link in the podcast description below. Now it's now time for our weekly predictions game, where last week, Natalie, uh, you staged a little bit of a fight back. <laughs> I Actually, did. to be fair, while well, obviously I'm still dominating 3-1, <laughs> you did kind of wipe the floor with me because you got, what, two exact score predictions. Yeah, two exact. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm on a roll now. But yeah, that was my first victory of the season. As you say, Gab, 3-1 you lead. Uh, a reminder that we both have to predict five games from around the football world this weekend. And whoever gets the most correct results and score lines wins that week. Now, first up this week, we've got Palace against Newcastle United. Palace with the uh, much-kicked and much-troubled Wilfried Zaha up front, but, boy, he is devastating against Rafa Benitez's sophisticated defense. Um, I'm imagining, again, uh, Tyneside Metro Transit Authority in front of uh, Drubava's goal. I'm going to go nil-nil. Oh, really? Okay, I've actually gone for a 2-1 win for Palace. Yeah, I've no idea why, but that's what I've gone for. In the next game, Craven Cottage, Fulham against Watford. Slavisa Jakanovic up against his old side. So I am going for a one-all draw in that one. What about mm, you, Gab? Yeah, I kind of like the draw angle. Mm. I think Watford are a tough, tough nut to crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think Jakanovic, so much talent, but not quite there yet. So, uh, yes, I will join you in that 1-1 prediction. Interesting. Go on, what's the next one? Next up, we have Arsenal and Everton. Um, We'll see whether it's Burned Leno or Peter Cech in goal. (laughs) I think Arsenal do this. I think they're on a slight mini roll, and I think they match up very well with Everton. So, for that reason, I'm going to say 2-0 to the Arsenal. Oh, do you know what? I've gone for the same. 2-0. 2-0. I'm right in thinking Richarlison is in the back for this one, but I don't think he's going to inspire Everton. And I think, as you say, Arsenal on a bit of a roll now, and I think they're just going to be too strong. Now, <laughs> the next one, this I have no knowledge about South American football at all. So uh, this was a tricky one. Boca Juniors against River Plate. Um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about, about these two sides before I tell you my score. What's what they call the Super Clasico. Mm. Boca Juniors against River. It's, it's going to be played at Boca's uh, ground, La Bombonera, as opposed Ooh. to River Plate's ground, El Monumental. River have had their ups and downs in, in, in recent years. 
Boca are doing better right now, but I, again, it's always so tight with these two. I'm, I'm going to go 1-1. One, one. Are you? Okay. I think from the limited knowledge that I have, Boca have got off to a better start than River Plate. So I'm actually going for a 2-0 win. All right. Mm. Now, in your wheelhouse... <laughs> oh, gosh. The Borough, uh, Middlesbrough. Yeah, they're doing against well. Against Swansea City. Tony Pulis versus Graham Potter. Now, the first time I was introduced to Graham Potter was in a piece by uh, our old colleague Rory K. Smith talking about how Graham Potter had uh, made ballet dancing part of the training regime or part of sort of some experiment at, you know, whatever poxy club in the Swedish second division <laughs> he was coaching at the time, which later, he, I think it was Austersons, yes, which they was, of course, he did say. very well with it. Mm. Um, Tony Pulis, of course, needs no introduction. Tough call, but I'm going to go with Swansea to win away. Really? Yes. That intrigues me. Yes, I, I got a 1 0. Yeah, okay. Well, obviously, Middlesbrough won in midweek to take them back up to second in the table. Swansea lost. I'm going for a Borough 1 0 win. Narrow, but a 1 0 win. Okay, it's just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's trivia teaser. We asked you to name the three British clubs who have won the European Cup or Champions League, but who have not won any of the lesser European trophies. Come on, Let's then, Gab. If, no, 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 no. Let's see if the gear brand knows the answer. Because I'm looking at the script right now. I already knew the answer. But let's see if the gear brand, who I don't believe was alive for (laughs) any of these, incidentally. Do you know? It's on the script. I know, but I I gave you a layup. It's an alley you. You have a chance to go and look really clever. Um... Could it, could it be Aston Villa, um, Nottingham Forest, and, and perhaps Celtic? Yes, oh. and for bonus points, I need you to tell me the managers of those three when they lifted their first European <laughs> Cup. Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest. Yes. Jock Steen at Celtic. But you don't tactical, know the name of the tactical Villa Tactical Supremo, I don't know. And it's, Villa. it's interesting because it's a guy named Tony Barton, but the odd thing is he didn't win the title the, the previous years. Only the champions could play in the European Cup back then. Uh, some other bloke named Ron Saunders won it. I'm sure there's a story about it, and I will look it up thanks to the god of the internet. But I just think it's so weird now. Can you imagine that today? Somebody wins the title, and then he doesn't stick around the following year for the European Cup. I'm pretty sure Ron Saunders didn't move on to a bigger club. Yeah, whatever happened to him? Where <laughs> yeah. did he go? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, strange that he didn't I would say, yeah, back in the day we would say answers on a postcard, but you know what? We don't need your answers because we can look it up ourselves. Indeed, we can. That's it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, James Gearbrandt and Dolly Kay. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a month for a three-month trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday. See you then. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.